welcome back to another episode of Aspian Menopause. Today I've got Cynthia Sue Larson here and I'm so excited. She's got such interesting information on lucid dreaming, creating a positive timeline and the Mandela effect. Cynthia, welcome on the show. Oh, thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you today. Can you explain what lucid dreaming is compared to ordinary dreaming and maybe give a little bit of um, background of how you started discovering about that in your life right lucid dreaming it's a kind of it's a special kind of dreaming where um it uh, the simplest way to explain it is you're basically noticing that you're inside of a dream and so you're dreaming and you also know that you are dreaming and so it's a, it's like a higher level of awareness within the dream. It's it's kind of like the ability to step back and observe, to, to notice, for example, like, oh my gosh, this is a dream. That means I can fly. And because uh, like in a dream, I, I don't know about you, Wendy, but I like to be able to fly sometimes. And so for me, if I notice it's a dream, I like the kind of flying where I just become weightless and I just slowly, that's my favorite way to just sort of take off. I just sort of float up like suddenly I remember I'm like a balloon and I just gently start levitating, you know, off the ground. I love that kind of flying. And so it's, and I love it if I'm inside a building, I like to just gently sort of bump the ceiling. I like that feeling, that, that feeling of touching the ceiling in the dream. And because it's a dream, you can also go through the ceiling. It can go right through the roof and then you can end up like in the sky. I just enjoy the whole sensory experience of it in the dream. I love lucid dreaming. When it happens, it's like so much fun. And so the thing about lucid dreaming uh, for me is that it gives me the ability in the dream to explore reality uh, from that kind of a playful way of being a little bit, uh, it's like a human, but with superpowers, if you want to think of it that way. Not that I'm abusing superpowers, but I just like the ability to think about a question and feel like I'm seeing things deeper, to recognize that even though I know it's a dream, I can still see the underlying undercurrents and emotional truths that are present in relationships with myself and the world, you know, family, friends, neighbors, every, you know, everybody that I interact with. So lucid dreaming is powerful and everyone's capable of doing it, I, I believe. But a lot of people probably um, don't know about it or don't get experienced in practicing it. And experience helps because if you don't practice it, then it's possible that you can get so excited the first time you notice this is a lucid dream. Because you might, some people look at their hand to just see, does it look like my hand or does it look, how does it look? So they might look at their hand and notice, good heavens, I'm wearing some sort of a 16th century costume. Is this a costume party? And look at all these rings. Am I royalty? What's going on? And then that might be the moment where the person notices I'm in a dream. And that moment of noticing that can be so exciting. If you don't lucid dream very often, what can happen is you can wake up the emotional charge of that excitement. I'm royalty. You know, this is the 16th century or whatever. And then boom, you're awake and like phooey. Because the fun of being in the lucid dream, of course, is to stay in the lucid dream. It's okay to be a little excited, but you want to keep it toned down. So it's like, yep, it's fine. You want to stay uh, kind of relaxed and um, just go with it. And you talk about going through the ceiling. I mean, how did you discover you could do that? Did you just taste it out? Because I started doing this when I was a child and I had a lot of nightmares. 
And so for me, lucid dreaming was a way to deal with the problem. My parents got very tired of me running to them like, mommy, mommy, I have a nightmare. It's another nightmare. And I could see she was getting annoyed. And I thought, okay, I'm going to have to deal with this. I didn't know how to deal with it, but I thought I need help. So that's um, when I was a little girl is when I started waking up inside my dreams. Um, what happened is, you know, the flying was, it seemed like that's when I would be attacked, actually. It's like I loved flying. So I was already sort of slightly lucid in my dreams, realizing that, hey, I'm flying and it's a dream and this is fun. But then I was getting nightmares where things would be grabbing at my feet. And that was not fun. And not fun, not fun. And that's when I keep running. to I'd wake up, run to my mom, mommy, mommy. Anyway, that got old fast. And so I had to figure something out. And I, I didn't know what to figure out. But one time I was in a dream and this started happening again, like, oh, brother. But then I, I just knew I need help. I need help. And what I saw were these little cartoon characters that um, these little tiny guys, they just look like a cartoon, little black and white, good guy kind of guy. And they'd stand on each other's shoulders. And then they were so tiny. I thought, how can they help? But once they all stood on each other's shoulders, then it, they were the little guys were becoming a big guy. And then they could be any size to face any dream problem that was coming after me and trying to like grab me by the feet or whatever. And that was the breakthrough. And I didn't, I didn't have nightmares anymore. Didn't have to run to my mom anymore. And so I was now capable of lucid dreaming, waking up in the dream, knowing I do have helpers and I'm not alone, even though it might seem like I'm alone. So that was kind of the turning point um, for me. So these little helpers, so are they there every time you dream or Good question. It seems like they came in because I knew I needed help. And it was a direct response, even though it wasn't exactly at that moment. But it was my realization, I can't keep bothering my mother. My mom's getting annoyed. And you know, she needs her sleep too. <laughs> this is not working so well. It seemed like just that that simple intention that I need assistance in the dreams. I need someone in the dream to help keep this situation clear. As I got older, I think I recognize these, you could call them angels. Um, as a young child, I didn't have a particular name for it, but I knew that angels are real, even though that wasn't the kind of spiritual faith I was raised with, because my dad was an atheist. My mom was an agnostic. So if there was a religion, it would be science. Like people can figure things out and facts can be recognized. And that was my dad's um, perspective with the engineering kind of a mindset. I don't think he's opposed to religion now. Um, but he just didn't raise me in that environment. I didn't have the benefit of that naturally, but I found it, fortunately. You talk about quantum jumps in um, your book, Quantum Jumps and Reality Shifts. Um, so this, can you explain what it means to have a parallel, um, a parallel reality going and how you discovered you could move between them? Yes. Uh, well, it's, um, that's, there's a lot of questions in there. <laughs> Try to tease them gently apart. Basically, um, there's something that we humans are doing constantly. First of all, our identity is multifaceted and multilayered. So when we think of, when I think of myself as I or me, it's really a multitude. It's many levels of myself. Just like in a lucid dream, I can recognize there's a part of me that's got a higher level conscious agency than the one who's stuck in the situation. Because that's really what's happening when we notice that we're in a lucid dream. We're becoming aware of levels of conscious agency. <clears throat> and so 
that um, that very focus of our attention and our intention and our ident- identity. Who is the observer? You know, what at what level are we observing life with? Um, it's not just this um, unaddressed question. I think even in science, it, physicists are guilty of this too. We think we know what a scientist is. We think we know what that observer is. And I think it's the biggest unaddressed issue in all of our Western sciences is um, the unfortunate assumption of objective observation and objective reality. The truth seems to be showing us from scientific experiments that, um, in fact, subjective experience, the subjective observation uh, can be quite unique. And you can have two observers at the same place and same time literally witnessing, if you want to call it that, parallel realities, literally witnessing two different observational measurements. And we're getting scientific results from genuine quantum physics experiments showing us that, which might seem shocking because it flies in the face of our assumptions. The assumption right now is that Cynthia is one observer. I would say that's not exactly true. Um, I know that I've got levels of conscious agency. You even use terms like my head felt one way, but I followed my heart. I got cold feet. I had a bad gut feeling. Um, We say these things, but we don't own what that really starts to mean for us. And what if we take the awareness that we get from lucid dreaming and we start recognizing that that same ability that we have, each of us has, to be a conscious observer operating from our feet, from our gut, from our heart, from our head, and and then recognizing we can align within ourselves for a sense of integrity. It, it's possible to have your heart lined up with your head, lined up with your gut and your feet, and start feeling really good about it. I know I'm going a long way around, but okay, now I'm coming back to your question. Sorry for the detour, but that identity is so important. Who is the observer? Okay, now that we know the observer is that multifaceted being of conscious agency with many levels of awareness, now we're ready to notice something else, something amazing that I just touched on briefly, that we can actually sense that there are multiple possible nows and realities right near us, right adjacent to us. And so we can summon them, we can invite them. I would recommend first be in alignment with yourself, just so that your head, your heart, your gut, your feet, everything all lines up. You feel, in a way, we feel um, so much ourselves like that, in a way that most people in our culture, Western culture, are not um, encouraged to find or to live that way. I would totally encourage it to start trusting ourselves, listening to ourselves, becoming more truly ourselves through lucid dreaming. And then this is what I would call lucid living. And then we can actually notice that there can be an adjacent reality that I would, I I tend to refer to it as how good can it get? Um, It's an invitation to, to, to invite that reality into our lives, which can be much better than anything that we thought we would be stuck with or have to deal with. And it really can allow us to start exploring these adjacent possible realities some of which we're seeing, like I mentioned in these experiments, that two observers, observational devices at the same place and same time, that's referencing an experiment published around 2019. And it was conducted by scientists at the University of Edinburgh, Scotland, 
in collaboration with some scientists at uh, Vienna, Austria. They were working with six entangled photons in a very fancy version of the double slit experiment using two observational devices that literally witnessed two completely different observations at the same place at the same time. And I would expect that we're going to see more and more evidence that that is, in fact, how reality works. Because what I notice and what I've been studying for about 25 years now is firsthand reports from people like myself and people who I consider quite reputable and believable telling me firsthand reports that they have witnessed reality shifts, quantum jumps, and Mandela effects. You talk about your head, your heart, and your gut, and if they're not aligned, that, so that would be automatically three different realities going on at the same time. Is that right? Yeah, so- what we tend to experience, though, is a jumble, like a yarn ball that got tangled. So it, it, typically, people are not thoroughly pleased with their lot in life. Like if you ask your average person, how are you feeling? They're going to complain about something, probably, if you know them quite well. Because in that tangle... Something feels like it got ignored or it got not properly respected somehow. And that's why you say the asking how good can it get. So if you were doing something just out of your head saying you must do it, then it helps your heart be part of it and your gut as well. Is is that what that phrase does then? Yeah, the phrase, it's a very uh, powerful, I call it, to me it's an affirmation, but it's also a kind of a battle cry, if you wish. It's because it pulls us into very... um, very revolutionary optimism at a level that most people might feel like they can't go too far into that too fast. So asking how good can it get, um, there will be a self-limiting factor that people will automatically bring to it. So to the degree that they're capable of accepting and receiving love and compassion and kindness and goodness and all the things that we would naturally know, these are good, these are good, these are good. Um, So Um, But some people feel like they don't deserve that or they don't know how they could possibly have that. So they have their own belief limit, uh, like blinders on. So it's difficult for them to even see it when the possibility arises. So by asking how good can it get, we are each training ourselves to raise the bar for ourselves. And little by little, uh, as you're suggesting, also address what might be some misalignment between the head, the heart, and the gut. It's a process. Uh, Some people choose to work on it consciously, and I do work with clients who are working on those kind of things. It does seem that if some dog poo on the pavement, like a mile away, it becomes like the focus of a walk, and then you don't see the sky and the tree and the birds, and all you see is that negative thing that's in the pathway ahead. It sounds like it could be a great training to um, get out of that Thing where you actually just focus on the one tiny little <laughs> thing. Right. That's exactly it. And we're hardwired. So if people feel like, gosh, that's me, I'm the one focusing on the dog poo 100 feet away. Why do I do that? Um, well, it's just normal. I think it seems like it's built in, hardwired into us. Uh, I think it seems to be part of our protective uh, setup so that we automatically recognize danger signals and we... Um, it keeps us safe from infancy on. But the thing is, once we become fairly confident that we are safe, then we don't need that so much of a protection system built in. And that's where we can start. 
um, doing according to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, focusing more on higher level aspects of our um, of our self-realization and asking how we can be of service in the world, because that starts to feel like that's how good life can get. Uh, for most of us who notice how good can it get, um, it's not just about having our simple life pleasures met. That, that's that's fun for a little while, but usually the highest level of joy and happiness that we humans can feel really comes from feeling worthy, worthwhile, helpful, of service, of value, of use, of that we have meaning just by being. And so when we start feeling that, the level of joy that we feel, it can be quite extraordinary. Yes, I, I've heard that that all different people and different um, cultures that at the end of the day on like their deathbed they just feel that they wanted to feel like they've done something worthwhile and so what you've said about the meaning um, in our lives yes and you have an exercise called the starfish what is that, that about please Okay, it's not my invention, but it's something that's been popularized thanks to, I guess, I guess it came really roaring forward with the TikTok community. These would be um, the millennials, um, the people who are now in their 20s and 30s. And so I want to give credit where credit's due. And so um, the starfish is, I'll just describe how it works. <laughs> okay, so if someone wishes to do reality shifting or quantum jumping, um, usually what's necessary is to get into that state of being free from one's own body. And you want to um, basically get into a lucid living state of mind, which meditators throughout millennia have been able to achieve typically through years and years of meditation. But here's a fast track way to do it. Um, these millennials have noticed that you can lay down on a flat surface like the floor or your bed if it's big enough and so that your arms and legs are not touching each other. And the reason for that is you don't want to be snapped back and brought back into awareness of your physical body. It's a little bit like those those isolation tanks that were popular, I think, in the 70s, where people would go into a tank of water in the dark and put on earplugs and eye protection, and then they'd go into a dark tank of salt water and just be isolated for a few minutes or an hour. So this is doing something similar without all the fancy equipment. You're just going to lie on your bed, not moving, hands not touching each other, your legs not touching each other. You can keep your left brain rational mind occupied by some kind of an exercise. Like you can be counting like um, one, two, three, four. You can count in tens or count backwards. Anything it takes to kind of keep that mind, the monkey mind occupied. Because what you're really doing is you want to turn off the physical sensations, keep the left brain busy with something. And then while you're doing all that, the guiding intention for the reality shift that's intended. Um, and I, I, I would recommend instead of doing it the way the millennials, the millennials are doing things like um, jumping into Hogwarts. They want to feel that they're in a lucid dream and really feeling like it's a reality and that they can literally jump into another reality of their own choosing. Again, because of I, I take it from a spiritual perspective, my recommendation is use the, I would recommend guide yourself with how good can it get. Uh, that's typically not the starfish guidance. Um, usually they're going to recommend 
you pick, um, it, it, then it becomes, they do it a little like law of attraction or manifestation, where a lot of these um, proponents will recommend that you have your own best idea of where you're jumping to. You've got a very clear sense of your desired reality. Um, that's possible. I mean, I, I, I can't deny that I've done that sometimes. We had a pet dog that was getting cataracts. And of course, I didn't want the dog to get cataracts. So I'm envisioning the dog's eyes are just fine. And he had other physical problems. Every time I just visualize he's just fine. And he always was. So I'm, I'm not saying I don't do this, but I tend to only do it for healing for, for myself and others, typically. Um, although sometimes I've done this for money. Money has just shown up instantly. So you can definitely do this for anything you want. What I'm suggesting is that there are going to be less repercussions or regrets if you're guiding everything by the overriding, overarching intention. How good can it get? So that you're basically setting yourself up not to be painted in a corner, not to learn some morality lesson about greed or vanity or hubris or pride. I'm just speaking for all of us here. I don't think most of us need to get those kinds of lessons. Those of us who are doing the starfish technique or these others hopefully are coming in at the highest level of being in service to highest goodness, to creation, to each other. And that our intention hopefully is not selfish. It's not greedy, I hope. And here's why I'm saying these things, because if it is, um, I just really recommend don't go into it with that because what happens is people will learn those lessons. Um, and I, I just wouldn't wish that on anybody. I'd rather people just recognize I don't need to learn not to be greedy. I already know that. And I, I don't need to learn not to be prideful. I know that, you know, or selfish or whatever. We see this in the Buddhist torments. There are hundreds of them and also the seven deadly sins our spiritual traditions have long taught us that we need to be of highest service. We need to be of integrity, of goodness and kindness. And so that's the principle and the foundation that I'm recommending people go into any of these techniques with, whether it's the starfish to get into that lucid living, kind of a living the dream state of mind. And I guarantee you can walk into a different reality. Uh, do you need the starfish technique? No. When you've been doing this as long as I have, or, uh, then it can just very instantly, you can instantly be in a different reality. I tend to just walk down the hall, past many doorways, walk back into the room I was wishing for the reality shift in, and often just do that a couple times, and on, the reality shift will occur. Um, so for me, walking is what I prefer to do, but a lot of people recommend the starfish technique, and it is popular right now. You need to say walking down the corridor, is that in real life or is that in your lucid dream? Oh, that's in real life. Um, but I, I think these things work for me because I'm ex fully expecting it. I've, like I've, I've been studying this for 25 years. I'm fully aware that reality can and does shift completely. I've had a flat tire on my car instantly be completely fixed without me doing anything. Wow. All I did is pull the, <laughs> I just pulled the car to the, cur to the side of the road like, you can't drive it like this. It's completely flat. It's on the rim. I better take a look at it. I'm running late for the appointment, but let's deal with this. And wouldn't you know it, I was doing my how good can it get meditation as I was driving, and then this happened. But I'm not getting upset. I'm just going to take a look at it. So I park the car, turn the engine off, get out of the driver's side. I know which I know which tire went flat because it's, it's on the rim. I can hear it. It's going plop, 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 making that noise that a completely flat tire makes. It's pulling the steering wheel to the right. It's, it's the right front wheel. So I, I'm taking a look at the tire now, and it's fine. 
And now I don't know what, wow. now I don't know what to do. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm late for my appointment, but I have, so I walk back to the driver's side, sit down in the driver's seat and think, I guess I'll go. But wait a minute. I know that was a flat tire. So I get back out of the car. Even though this happens to me, it's still confusing when it's happening. I kick the tire because I don't know what to do. It's like, I don't need to take it off or inflate it or fix it or anything. Usually I'd, I'd put the spare tire from the trunk of the car on the car, but that's unnecessary because it looks fine. So I think, what am I going to do? It's flat. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Okay. Well, I'll just, it looks fine. So I'll just get in the car. I know what I'll do. I'll keep the windows rolled down so I can hear it. I'll go as slowly as possible. There's nobody on the road right now. Go five miles an hour. Sounds fine. 10 miles an hour. Sounds fine. I'm now driving the speed limit. Sounds fine. I drive for 15 minutes, park the car, jump out, look at the tire. It's fine. Run into my appointment come back, check the tire. It's fine. That kind of thing can totally happen. And I've needed money to give a waitress a tip. And I've been able to pull dollar bill after dollar bill out of an empty wallet with my young daughters watching. Children are great at this because they they don't yet know that that kind of thing can't happen when they're young enough. And plus, I think my household was a magical household that way. Uh, I was able to keep asking my daughters, you know, that's not enough for the waitress tip. And I'd say, but you know what? Sometimes if we look again, we'll find the right amount there. Should I look again? And my daughter said, yes. So I'd open the wallet. And of course, um, because everyone's in that joyful state and expecting it, there's another dollar bill. I'm doing this repeatedly. I've got $1 bill, $2 bills, $3 bills. I forget what the tip was, wow. but it was like, okay, that's perfect. We have it. We're done. You know? That's why you don't need the starfish position. Um, if you know that these things can happen, then you can just walk down a hallway or you can open and shut a cupboard, open and shut your wallet, open and shut the refrigerator, wherever it is that you need something to change. I recommend, I like that opening and shutting thing or walking away, come back, because it gives everybody just a moment to have that plausible deniability is what it seems like nature wants. It's kind of like, don't look right now. And there's a quantum Zeno effect that has something to do with why that might be the case. I'm just referencing a fully recognized phenomenon from quantum physics where it's like the watched pot never boils. So in a quantum system, you can lock a system into a given state by observing, observing, observing constantly. It's kind of like being obsessive compulsive and just check, 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 checking something so that you're observing it so often that it's locking that quantum system into a certain quantum state. And only by looking away, observing something just for a moment, you know, like shut, it's just like walk away, come back, shut the cupboard, open the cupboard, shut the wallet, open the wallet, walk down the hall, come back, that kind of thing. Then you've given the system just that little momentary break that it requires. So now you can be in the new reality. And it's quite enjoyable to experience that for me, because these things tend to be like miracles that they're consistently quite good, you know, for me. Occasionally things go missing and I do miss them and wonder what happened. And sometimes they don't come back, but I, I know they might come back. So that's the other kind of thing some people aren't happy about with reality shifts. They'll say that they only experience money vanishing from their pocket. In my case, I seem to notice money showing up like thousands of dollars in the bank account suddenly or dollar bill after dollar bill in the wallet. But I'm asking, how good can it get? I think that makes a difference. If that's not motivation to learn the technique, I don't know what is. It comes in handy. <laughs> Socks go missing and then it'll reappear in a very strange place. I've never tried the how good can it get with it. Right. I did start the website realityshifters.com um, talking about the missing socks because when I first started the website in the 1990s, a lot of people didn't know what I was talking about. This is before 
the starfish technique became popular. There was no TikTok. It was the 1990s. So I would basically tell people like my neighbors, friends, uh, I would tell them about this. And the easiest way to describe it was to talk about lost socks from the laundry because it seems like it happens to everyone. And things like missing keys. You know how, how when birds fly, how they always move together? Is that because they're all operating on the same... Um, how does that work? Okay, that's a good question. Uh, that To me, that's an example of noticing quantum phenomena in, in the, the natural world. What we're seeing is basically an observation of birds flying together like that is showing that we can have kind of like a quantum fluid or a quantum liquid occurring. You know, there can be this degree of um, cooperation in the natural world. Because what's happening, if you look at a flock of swallows or birds, starlings, I think, are the best that people tend to see, where a flock of starlings flying together are literally capable of moving as if they're one bird. And they, um, they've been studied with photographers and people filming them to see is there first one bird that turns and then they all start turning. And that's not the case. Actually, what's happening is they literally are going together, just like a quantum liquid. What's interesting about quantum so-called particles or quantum moves like a wave function is that there's this complete communication. Einstein called it spooky action at a distance with this idea from quantum physics that two particles separated through space can be entangled to such a degree that to make a measurement of one of the two quantum entangled pair, if you measure one, then you know for sure what the state of the other entangled particle will be. The reason he called it spooky action at a distance is because classical physics did not allow for an explanation of how such a thing could be. How could it be possible that even quantum particles separated now, they've done it across miles. How can something be moving faster than the speed of light, basically? And it looks like this is the way nature actually does work. And this is actually what's happening with entangled beings, whether they're starling birds or entangled diamonds. These teeny tiny little diamonds have become quantum entangled. And it means that they can move together. They can be uh, measured. They can operate together, which is a requirement if you're building a quantum computer. If you're building a quantum computer, it's operating with uh, qubits, which are the key decision factor. The classical computers operate with bits, which are binary information. Um, a bit would be either a zero or a one. It's like flipping a coin. It's like heads or tails. But in a quantum computer, a qubit is not at all like one or zero, although you could be um, using something like that. It's much more in a state of complete uncertainty. It's holding a potentiality of a multiplicity of possible states. And when you've got entangled qubits, these entangled qubits would be like flipping a whole handful of coins in the air, but they'd all be like a flock of starlings. And so whatever, um, if you're calling heads or tails, whatever you're calling, it's all going to be the same. And so there's a coordination going on with this entangled flock of birds. And we do see this in the natural world. We're seeing all kinds of quantum phenomena being exhibited, you know, not just starlings, but lots of other places as well. And we would expect to see that. So as we're recognizing that nature doesn't work completely in a classical function, 
but instead it has lots of these quantum capabilities, then we notice that things such as what John, the physicist John Archibald Wheeler, he was the first one to point out that we live in a participatory universe, that we can ask nature a question and get an answer, that we are observers. There's such a thing as a delayed choice, which means there's a component to our consciousness, which is actually coming from the future. We're capable as human beings. Uh, That's why I like to ask that question, how good can it get? Because there's a part of us that's actually from the future. We already know how good it can get, maybe not consciously, but there's a part of us that's connected to that possible reality that's already chosen it, that's already there. Again, John Archibald Wheeler was not into metaphysics the way I am, so he probably never would have worded it this way. But the point is, he gets credit for that, and I just want to put that out there because it gives us the ability to access optimal realities, to put an affirmation out there like, today I will be my best self. It gives us the opportunity to get what we need even when we don't know what it is. It gives us the opportunity to live life like a waking dream with these reality shifts, receiving answers in physical reality. So uh, there's just a lot going on with all of this. And we get clues from quantum physics when we look at the natural world to see that indeed this probably is what's happening, even though it's not what most of us were taught going to school. If you were to mention someone who was like your inspiration or your superhero, who who would that be? Well, I love uh, some of the great mystics in the world, like Lao Tzu, Wiscan Buddha. They could see uh, that there's this huge connection between who we think we are and reality itself. I'm a big fan of the mathematician and polymath Leibniz, created the pillars of science that we now look to, that when we look for the most elegant solution to a scientific problem, I'm also part of a group that gets together also monthly called the International Mandela Effect Conference. And we are tracking what we call the golden timeline. What we're doing is looking at Mandela effects. We're looking at large-scale reality shifts that huge groups of people are noticing. But it looks like humanity can help to solve insoluble problems when we collectively adopt a very positive strategy and take a look at the, the way some things seem to be changing Everything from the continents on the planet seem to be different. Spellings of words, where we are in the solar system, in the cosmos, that looks like it's changed. The position of our organs in our body, the heart is no longer on the left side of the body, it's now in the center. Kidneys have moved up to relative safety, so if you used to get a... Have they? Oh yeah, um, so have, so now oh. yeah, you won't be injured or killed with a kidney punch anymore because the kidneys have moved up under the rib cage. Yeah, things are really changing. Extinct animals are coming back. Lots of good news here, and we track it every month. And that website is imec.world. Thank you so much, Cynthia. Really fabulous to speak to you and, and lots and lots of juicy tips in there. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Wendy. Thanks for what you're doing.